Thank you for listening to this talk produced by the Art Gallery of South Australia. Good afternoon, everyone. Ghana Yatanga Yuandi. We stand on Ghana land and I honour the Ghana elders past, present and emerging and pay my respects for their deep collect connection with land. This is Karina Morgan, our fabulous Karina, who will be interpreting today with Auslan. And Karina's coming up for how many years? 25 years? 25 years working with the Art Gallery of South Australia. So I think big clap for you, Karina. <laughs> <laughs> So, yes, Rana Devonport, I'm director, as you well know, and thank you very much for being here in these difficult times, but we always believe that the gallery is a safe place for ideas and uh, a safe space to be alone together, and I think we, we really appreciate the role that art museums play in the world at the moment. So, it's a terrific pleasure to talk about this amazing work, and this is a work by the artist Hiroshi Sugimoto. He's 73 years old. He lives in New York and in Tokyo. He was born in 48 and he studied philosophy and politics uh, in Tokyo before uh, studying in San Francisco in 1970. And then in 1974, he moved to New York where he set up a studio and has moved back and forth between uh, Japan and New York ever since. How to speak about his work? He's an artist that works primarily with photography. He, I don't think, has ever taken a photograph of something fleeting in daily life. He is very considered about his use of photography. And I was thinking about how to describe his practice, and I think there's probably two trajectories of philosophical exploration that really underpin the aspects of Sugimoto's work. The first thing to say that he was without question uh, one of the most important and influential artists from Japan working today. Yayo Kasama is another and Takashi Murakami would also be another. So what is fascinating about Sugimoto is that he's very driven by the... He, and he's very connected now more and more with no theatre. And one of the tenets of no theatre is how it brings the historical into the contemporary world. And this is something, the more you explore Sugimoto's work, the more he's always looking at history and respecting uh, the, the flow of history and the great innovations of history and how to bring them into contemporary life. Secondly, there's no question that he's utterly fascinated by the alchemic magic that is photography. As many of you know, 1939 was really considered the beginning of photography. And that was the year that Louis Daguerre in France invented the uh, metal plate uh, photograph. And then very, very soon after, a chap called Henry Fox Talbot uh, created the calotype or the positive-negative paper system of photography. And this work, actually, and we'll come to that later, is works directly as an inspiration from Henry Fox Talbot and that explosion, really, of image-making that happened in 1939 that really changed the world. So, as I said, these two tenets of bringing history into the contemporary world and also the role of the photographic image. Now, 
when Sugimoto, and the first thing to say is that Henry Fox Talbot was a polymath. He was a mathematician, an inventor, a scientist, and a polymath. And so really is Sugimoto. He creates photographs. He works in architecture. He's a collector. He has created an extraordinary architectural enclave in Japan. And he works in sculpture, so he really works across all media. And he's a philosopher, and I will be reading quite a few quotes from Tsukimoto because he spoke eloquently and brilliantly. He actually had quite a strong presence in Australia a few years ago at the Sydney Biennale. Biennale of Sydney curated by David Elliott. And in that exhibition at Sydney at Cockatoo Island, there was this extraordinary old powerhouse that was installed with the lightning field images as light boxes that lined this kind of grand staircase. I mean, it was really extraordinary. And that, and he was invited to give the keynote address at that uh, Biennale of Sydney. And uh, it was, it was a, an extraordinary lecture where he talked about uh, philosophy, architecture, archaeology, and the making of art forms. So his, uh, I'm just going to trace about nine projects of Sugimoto's. This is, is really, in a lot of ways, the, the second last project he's worked on. All of his projects, he spans many decades. He doesn't begin a series and then end. He usually continues them for many, many years, and in many cases, decades. So in the 70s, he came to prominence with his first suite of works. And it's very telling and appropriate that we're sitting here in a museum because when he first went to New York, he loved going to the American Museum of Natural History. And in there, of course, are these kind of strange and mysterious dioramas, which we now find quite antiquated. They still appear in museums around the world, but they are utterly fake. Uh, and yes, you, you can, I can see you pointing at the, at the diorama with the Chapman brothers too, because they, we have that diorama really in the next room as well. So these dioramas are a tableau of history, founded very much with some dubious ideas about archaeology and anthropology. And so what Sukimoto found is that through a camera, they absolutely came alive and were these recreations in the environment. So here is this sort of double, double faux investigation where he is taking a mediated view of a mediated view of an imagined natural environment. So in that double faking, they created their own life. He then later on, and these aren't part of the nine projects I'm going to talk about, but then later on, he worked with Madame Tussauds. And he went to London and he took photographs, portraits of Lady Diana and various other historical figures. And in so doing, they absolutely became, had the illusion of realistic portraits. So he was very interesting in this double foe of reality. When he was working in these dioramas, he talks about how he's always in conversation with himself, questioning himself about modes of experimentation. And in so doing, he asked himself the question, what would happen if I left the shutter open, a wide shutter open on my large format camera in a movie theatre? So he went to a movie theatre in New York, didn't get permission, kept the camera on wide shutter for two and a little hours 
And of course, the image was exactly what he imagined, this stunning silver screen. So these photographs are very beautiful. They're of a, a darkened theater with this white shining light in the middle of the space. And what happens is that light then casts enough light on the rest of the theater to illuminate the theater. And these theaters, he's been creating those since the 70s. What I love about that series, and we owned a couple of them at the Auckland Art Gallery, what I love about that series is how they play with time. So here, in the snapping of a shutter in a camera, is the condensation of two and a half hours of time. So the whole notion of temporality, duration, is condensed into this one image. And there are so many beautiful parallels between that work and this work, which is a condensation and a concentration of the enormous and unfathomable power of electricity in a single second. The third series I'd like to talk about are the seascapes. And this is possibly what Sugimoto is best known for. He works in two scales, photographs that are about this size and then these very large format images as well. And the seascapes are very beautiful. They are simply an image of the ocean and the sky, of water and air. And in so doing, what he has endeavoured to do is take images of all of the great oceans in the world and as many seas as he can. So he continues, of course, to do that to this day. And in these images, the horizon appears in the, in the absolute middle of the photograph in a whole range of different environments and uh, different times of the day. And I'll just read you a little, which gives you a hint about his philosophical concerns with these images. They're very meditative. They remind us of the endlessness of the world and of the duration of time that is beyond our own human existence. So, seascapes. Water and air. So very commonplace are these substances. They hardly attract attention, and yet they vouchsafe our very existence. The beginnings of life are shrouded in myth. Let their water and air. Living phenomena spontaneously generated from water and air in the presence of light. Through that could just as easily suggest random coincidence of a deity. Let's just say that there happened to be a planet with water and air in our solar system and moreover at precisely the right distance from the sun for the temperatures required to coax forth life while hardly inconceivable that as such one such planet should exist in the vast reaches of universe. We search in vain for another similar example. Mystery of mysteries. Water and air are right here before us in the sea. Every time I view the sea, I feel a calming sense of security, as if visiting my ancestral home, I embark on a voyage of seeing. The next series I want to mention is not dissimilar to this idea of endless seeing, and it's called The Sea of Buddha. It's a very beautiful series. Hands up if you've been to Kyoto. Okay, quite a few. Did you go to the Sengo Sengendo Temple? Okay, so you would know that beautiful temple, also known as the Hall of a Thousand Buddhas. It's a 12th century temple that is burned down several times because of being a timber temple, but it's always in Japanese architecture rebuilt. 
and it's the honouring of the merciful Bodhisattva, the Avalakti Sevara figure, which is the representation of the Buddhist afterlife or the pure land Western paradise. And if you can imagine this space that is very long, it's almost like a long um, theatre, and there are tiers of very beautiful gilded Buddhas around this size, and there are 33 bays and there are a 1,000, and they are infinitely different in their manifestation. And the way you experience them is to walk past them and they look at you. So what he achieved after seven years of perseverance was to be able to take a photograph of uh, the Sengo Sengendo Temple and the Hall of 33 Bays. What he did was negotiate to have all of the post-medieval fittings and light fittings and objects, all of the exit signs and all of those intrusive objects that we have in our today's world, as well as all the fluorescent lights removed. And so what he photographed was dawn as the fingers of light penetrated and hit the light of these beautiful sculptures, these gilded sculptures, so the photographs took place. So in the same way that the theatres had uh, barely enough light to bring the articulation of the surfaces into our visual uh, realm, so too did the Hall of 33 Bays. And it was installed, we presented it at the um, Asia-Pacific Triennial in Brisbane along a long corridor. And it was the first time, too, I'd worked with the Sugimoto studio. And he was very insistent that there was a very particular sort of Belgium non-reflective glass. We couldn't believe how expensive this glass was at the time. Um, this was back in the, late in the mid to late 90s. But, of course, you absolutely need it. And you'll notice that the glass here is invisible. He's also very, very particular about the framing, this, this exquisite painted aluminum frame as well. So the whole piece, the light, the frame, the glass, is all considered as part of the objecthood of the work itself. And he asked, asked the question, will today's conceptual art survive another 800 years? And he, was, he made the Sea of Buddha at a time when he was observing the rise of conceptual art in New York in the 1970s, and he was wondering if conceptual art would have the, the sustaining power and the connectivity for humanity that these ancient sculptural installations provided. And really, you start to see how he's an artist who's interested in, you know, that German word, Gesamtkunstwerk, uh, the whole of the environment, the installation, the experience for the visitor, and how that translates in terms of our own experience. Then he embarked upon a very fascinating series called Conceptual Forms. I think today it still remains the most beautiful exhibition I've ever seen, which is an exhibition of Sugimoto at the Mori Art Museum, curated by Mame Karaoka quite a few years ago. And in that exhibition were these works that I didn't realise that he'd made, called Conceptual Forms. And what he was interested in is the manifestation of ideas and mathematics and scientific theory into physical form. And so from the 18th and 19th centuries, 
there has been this demonstration of mathematical and scientific theories as sculptural forms. And he started a series of taking photographs in the sort of very dramatic light of these, of these exquisite forms. And I'll just read what he said to give you an idea about his interests um, in, in, uh, that move well, well beyond culture into the whole realm of scientific and philosophical thought. And he said, while not wholly subscribing to the post-Renaissance rational scientific regard of the natural world, I do appreciate these 18th and 19th century optical devices and experimental implements that give visible form to unseen hypotheses. And I think that's what the secret is here. Visible form to unseen hypotheses. I've photographed suites of stereometric exemplars that were all fabricated in Germany in the late 19th and early 20th century and are now owned by the University of Tokyo. The mathematical models are sculptural renderings of trigonomic functions. Mechanical models were teaching aids for showing dynamics of industrial revolution machinery. And this is a beautiful quote he says at the end of this. Art resides even in things that have no artistic intentions. And I think that's a very powerful thing to say about the purpose of art. He then went on to make his own mathematical models. It wasn't enough just to take images of these 18th and 19th century models. He then extrapolated certain mathematical principles into sculptural form. So if you can, if you can imagine a very beautiful, elegant Brancusi pole, they're not dissimilar to that. These kind of extraordinary attenuated sculptures that might be in stainless steel or gilded bronze. He primarily made them out, out of stainless steel and also in pure aluminum. And then he took photographs of his own forms. So in this kind of cyclic idea of creating the sculpture and then the photographs of the sculpture that become objects in themselves. And then that brings us to lightning fields. So... You can see he's interested in phenomena, he's interested in the development of scientific thought, he's very interested in experimentation, he's interested in those moments in time when our conception of the universe and the world around us, the phenomenological aspects of our world, shift dramatically. And he became very interested in electricity. When you think about the word electricity, it actually comes from the ancient Greek electron, which actually means amber. And of course, if you rub amber on fur, sparks appear. So that is the, the basis of the word electricity. Uh, when subject to friction, materials such as amber and fur produce an effect that is known as static electricity. He became interested in the experiments of Benjamin Franklin. Uh, and in 1752, of course, Franklin flew the kite in a thunderstorm, nearly killing himself, but really articulating and proving the, um, the importance of electricity as a major natural phenomenon. He then became very interested in Michael Faraday's formulation of the law of electromagnetic induction in 1831 and electric generators. And of course, I mentioned before about Louis Degas in 1939 creating the metal plate photography, and then the same year with Henry Fox Talbot, who created the calotype photography. And this is describes from, again, from Sugimoto's perspective. Fox Talbot's momentous discovery of the photosensitive properties of silver alloys led to the development of the positive-negative photographic imaging. 
The idea of observing the effects of electrical discharges on photographic dry plates reflects my desire to recreate the major discoveries of these scientific pioneers in a dark room and to verify them with my own eyes. So it's not enough that he knows about this history. He wants to prove it in the laboratory. So this project took four years to perfect. And in the same way that Benjamin Franklin put his own life at risk, there is no question there was a lot of electrical currents floating around that, that studio of his. And more than once, there was electrical charges surging through his own body. So what he did perfect were these extraordinary images of 400,000 volts of electricity where he charged through, and it relates to the Van de Gaaf generator, and each, each image is absolutely unique. And what's happening here is he lays down the metal plate, he has these two orbs, the uh, 400,000 volts of electricity, emits across the surface. He has no idea what's going to happen on that surface. The weather, the humidity, the temperature, what he might be wearing. He devised all of these different tools, which are essentially all kitchen tools, all strapped up with lots of rubber, um, to be able to transmute the electrical charge. Now, what you'll see here, and this is what I absolutely love about these images, is that they could be the waterways, they could be tributaries, they could be satellite images of our, of our landmass. They could also be microscopic images of our, of our own vessels and bodily systems. They could also be lightning, and he realises this, of course, by calling them lightning fields. And uh, this is called Lightning Fields 227. That means, you know, it's the 227th one he, he made. And not all of them might have been successful. Some of them are completely different. This was, we chose this one. There was a selection of images. This is the one that we thought that would work best for the collection. What this does register is the only work from this series in any Australian collection and the first work by Sugimoto for this gallery. A number of other galleries, Art Gallery New South Wales, Queensland Art Gallery, National Gallery Victoria, they all have seascapes and theatres. And of course, Queensland has the Sengo Sengendo Temple, the Sea of Buddha. But no other museum has these, and all of those others also are all quite a small scale. He's now working on this bigger scale. I'd like to just say a couple of words about two final series and, um, of, his, of his practice. And uh, one relates to how we came to have this work in the collection. So at the end of 2019, do you remember that time when we used to travel the world and it was possible to get on a plane? We were very fortunate and took actually over 25 people to Japan. Rusty Kelty and myself took a joint group to Japan as part of the Contemporary Collectors. We had an amazing time. I know contemporary Japanese art and Rusty knows historical, so we were moving back and forth, which is very Sugimoto between the historical and the contemporary. And a an absolute highlight was the visit to the Enora Observatory at Odawara, uh, looking out across the uh, Sasagami uh, Sea. Now, that is an extraordinary place that could have been, in the Edo period, it could have been uh, the, the centre uh, rather than Edo. It could have, could have been 
the site for where the uh, the dynasties decided to to build the city, but it was decided not to. Uh, but there were uh, extraordinary relics and historical artifacts in this site. What he decided to do is to create an observatory, and in that observatory are a number of very, very, very different spaces. There is the optical glass stage and amphitheatre. So if you can imagine a stage about the size of this room made of optical glass about um, a foot and a half thick, and that looks out across the sea. So it's an exquisite site for no theatre. Also, there is the summer solstice light worship 100-metre gallery where he has large images of the seascapes. Uh, There's also the winter solstice light worship tunnel and in that um, space he has other images. There's also the stone stage, also for theatre. There is the the tea house and the very beautiful uh, gates, which are reconstructions from the Tokugawa period. So this is a, a, a very, very beautiful space. It's all set in a citrus grove. And in that space was one of the Lightning Fields works. And uh, as a group, we discussed it that evening and we decided this would be the work that we would like to uh, uh, enter the collection, if possible. And so the majority of the people, I think all of the people on that trip, um, contributed funds towards that and an, um, an, a, a small number of uh, generous donors back here in Adelaide contributed to the acquisition of this work. In a way, it was the, the environment created by Sugimoto that uh, really precipitated our desire to be closer to this artist here at the gallery's collection. As you know, we have nearly 3,000 historical works of art um, from Japan in this collection. We don't have a lot of contemporary works, but what we have is superb, with the Chiharu Shiota and, uh, and Sugimoto. So uh, it's very important, I think, to make that connection, make that connection, as we do here always, between the historical and the contemporary, because, you know, as I say, all great art was contemporary once. So I'll just end with a quote Another quote from Sugimoto where he contemplates uh, the existence of art in a contemporary world. I'd also like to say that his most recent series called Optics is colour, which is a shock and a revelation to the whole photographic and artistic community because we've never seen a colour image of this artist. So what he's been doing is experimenting for 15 years with prisms during solstices. And so finally, he has been able to um, craft a situation with a white wall and a particular prism uh, and the rays of the sun that cast the most beautiful light on that wall that he then photographs. Um, so they're very, they're almost like a, um, um, a, a Mark Rothko with this gorgeous slow gradation of colour. If you can imagine the Tim Maguire without all of the particles behind you, something that's not different to that. So uh, these are very beautiful and they're quite a surprise just when you think that it can't be more inventive. This 73-year-old Japanese man living in, in New York manages to reinvent his entire approach to photography. So I'm just going to end with this quote um, from Sugimoto. Throughout human history... 
Art has embodied the pinnacle of our mental and spiritual evolution. When humans first became self-aware, art captured this awakening in cave paintings. Later, art went on to express the forms of the divine and the might of kings. What should art express today? There is no simple answer to this question. What we can do is return to the wellspring of human consciousness, explore its sources and chart the course it has followed thus far. Thank you very much for joining us today. Please come and look more closely at this incredible work. Uh, we're very proud that it's now in our collection. And as you can see with this exquisite exhibition, Dark Matter, Bright Light, it speaks um, eloquently and intelligently to every work in this room that uh, all in themselves play with the manifestation of light, um, its phenomenological impact upon our senses, but it's also its metaphoric and metaphysical uh, presence and, and meaning uh, for humanity. Thank you.